we're continuing our series. And again, our series is, it's a lot of things. Our series title is our prayer as a church. We want to continue in every way to become his church. It's, it's our purpose, it's our objective. It's what we want to be looking for as we're reading through the scriptures and as we're studying our understanding God's word. We want to see not just those, those truths that help us, but we want to see how you, how God will use us and what he's doing in our midst. So as we read the scriptures and as we, as we come together, I encourage you, listen expectantly. Listen with knowing that God's word will communicate to you his truth. It will let you know more about who he is, more about his kingdom, more about your, your task, your responsibility. And so in chapter 19, verses 21 through 41, it's the third part of this ministry in Ephesus. And it says, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought not, you ought not to be quiet. You ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. 
and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So again, we're in the third part of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And as we've talked about before, it's the most successful ministry we have. Everything kind of comes together in just the right way. And I I want us to, to make sure we don't miss this really important thing. All the way back at the beginning of the chapter, there's a number that's given. And it's a number of men in the city who only kind of understood the need to repent, but they didn't really understand anything else. And Paul comes and teaches them the full gospel as we talked about. But those 12, working with Paul, transform a city. Those 12, working with Paul, reach an entire an entire continent, or at least half the continent, Asia Minor, those 12. I don't know how many of you you take seriously the, the Great Commission. We talk about it. It's in our mission statement. I don't know how many of us take seriously that, that God is in the business of not just transforming lives, but transforming communities, transforming families, transforming societies. And we sometimes think like, man, that's crazy. There's like over a million people just in Honolulu, and look at us. Who are we to think we could have any impact? Remember, it's not us having an impact. It's Christ having an impact through us. He took 12, he took 12, and he reached an entire city. He took 12, and the gospel was known throughout Asia Minor from 12. We're more than 12. What can God do with us? This is the church that I think, again, Paul's favorite church, I think, I think Paul knew his life was going to always be on the move, but I think sometimes, like, sometimes we all have, we have our retirement fantasies, or we have, you know, you know like, what I want to do when I'm no longer doing what I'm doing. And I think if Paul could have, he would have just loved to hang out in Ephesus. These, these are among his favorite human beings on the, on the earth. The gospel's growing, it's going out. But we're also seeing and learning as we're looking at Ephesus that, that Ephesus is also revealing what's within the heart of the world. You know, to kind of mix metaphors here, in the DNA of the world. Not just Ephesus, but representative of the empire itself, but really the world as, as a whole. And what we're going to see in this story is that, is that sin is interwoven into the culture. It's not called sin, and it doesn't, it doesn't always look like sin. 
but it's woven into the culture. In fact, in Ephesus, it's woven into the economy. They've done something that people have done for as long as there's been people. As long as there's been groups gathered, this has happened. People find a way to monetize sin. How can I, you know, use sin to create business, to generate income? It's been going on, as again, as long as there's been human beings hanging out with each other. It's hard to do it when you're by yourself because you'd just be selling sin to yourself. But as soon as you start getting the culture together, this, this, is, what, this is what happens. This is the potential. And this cult of Artemis is huge. Huge. It's the dominant cult in that part of the Roman Empire. The worship of the goddess Artemis. She's even seen kind of like as Mother Nature. You know, she's, it's, you know, as you should know, these Greco-Roman religions, they're all fertility religions. They just have fancy names for their gods and we're familiar with them. But they're no different from any other fertility religion trying to appease God so, you know, people will be fertile, the land will be fertile, and so that, you know, we win our battles. Artemis is like, the, the dominant cult of this area. And Ephesus is the capital. So much so that the temple of Artemis is actually looked at as a financial institution. You could somehow get loans. I don't know how. Not sure how you did loans back then. But from the, the temple of Artemis. It's more than just pagan beliefs and pagan religion. As a matter of fact, I would argue that the majority of people don't believe that Artemis even exists. But Artemis has become so woven into their culture that they're not going to say no. They're not going to, you know, try to move on to something else. You know, if you went, if, if you could somehow take modern, you know, practices and you take them back to Ephesus, all of us would have wanted to go to Ephesus if we were typical, you know, Greco-Roman people, and you know, we would have the t-shirt with Artemis's, you know, picture on it. You know, you would buy the t-shirt. My grandma went to Ephesus and brought me back this t-shirt. You know, you would have those kind of things. You would buy the little refrigerator magnet. You know, that's, that's what you would do. People went there to worship, but it also generated, um, you know, business in the, in, for everyone. Everybody benefited. If they did an economic impact, it would have it been in the hundreds of millions of dollars. It's not just sin. It's sin that's now been kind of monetized, woven into the culture where it's no longer even discernible and it's hard to extract. And I think, I think that's a struggle. We can kind of forgive the Greco-Roman people. They lived in a pre-Christian world, an emerging Christian world, we have less forgiveness for us today. Because today, 
in a post-Christian America, the world is blind to the consequences of sin. We're blind to the consequences of sin, and it's because we deny its existence. Sin is woven into our culture. Sin is woven into our economy. But because so many people in the world don't believe in sin, or they just have their list of sins over here, and it doesn't include all that the Bible says is sin, because of that, we're blind to the consequences. And if you deny the existence of something and you're blind to the consequences, what are you going to do to actually fix it? Probably nothing. In fact, one of the things I want you to think about, and this is kind of a bonus point here. It's not going to be on your notes. But you know, we saw last week the, the Christians who had, who had, you know, they had become Christians but they were still trying to hold on to their lives. They were, they were kind of asking the question I think sometimes we ask, like, how much can I keep doing and still be Christian? How much can I keep doing? How much can I, you know, how much of my life, my old life, can I retain and still be Christian? But when they saw the power of God come upon these sons of Sceva, and when the faithful witness of the church was going out, it wasn't that more non-believers were becoming Christians, it's that Christians were finally getting it and going, I gotta get rid of this stuff, this part of my culture, I've got to let go of, to the point that they were they were taking their magic books, and they weren't books. Don't think of a book. They were like a scroll, and it might have just had an incantation on it. It might have been something they hung in their house. But they somehow believed in it. They practiced it, and they said, this has no place in the life of someone who surrendered their life to Christ. Why do I believe God is the supreme God over all of creation, the most powerful, and then I think like I can, I can tap into these magical powers. They recognized it. They separated it. I'm just, I'm not telling you you should go and burn all your books. What I'm telling you is that what I think we need to do is pray the prayer of David that says, search me, O God. Reveal my heart. Reveal to me where I've allowed sin to be woven into my life. And God, help me to be free from it. Help me to know when I've taken your word and, and I kind of believe it, but then, you know, I know there's certain practices in my life that I don't want to change. There's a word for that, and it's an unhealthy word. And if we ever do a sermon series on the letter uh, to the church at Colossae, we'll talk about it, because that's what that whole letter's about. And it's about what's called syncretism. Trying to get my Christianity to sync up with my culture. 
all my philosophies, all my beliefs that I had before, instead of just laying them at the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, the ones that are good, give them back. The ones that, that are just wrong and against you, please, get them out of my life. Syncretism doesn't take that approach. Syncretism says, how can I sync these things up? See, there's other problems with denying the existence of sin besides being blind to the consequences because if there's no sin, there's no need for a Savior. And there's the danger of then mislabeling things, things that, that, that the Bible says is sin. We, some, we can mislabel to make them good. And the things that the Bible says is good, we can label as sin. You know, missionaries face this. You know, when, if you're a lifelong Baptist, Southern Baptist, you know that, that missions is at the very heart of what we do. And if you live in the circle, you don't really hear the criticism. But modern missions are under modern attack because the world is pushing back and they're saying, they're not looking at these missionaries who are giving their lives to, for what they believe, to go share, and not just share the gospel, but actually bring other relief like, like medicine, education, all of that. They're not looking at that. The critiques of, from society of Christian missionaries is, how dare you go in and disrespect the local religions. Disrespect the local culture. How dare you? And there's a larger and larger part of our society that believes Christian missionary activity, which is at the heart of what we do. It's the Great Commission. It's what John preached on last week. It's, again, in our mission statement that they believe that that's a sin, that it is an offense against the world, that you're bringing the truth and the hope and the light. It doesn't mean missionaries are perfect. It doesn't mean that, you know, Hawaii has a history of missionaries not getting everything right. But it's a rejection of any attempt to transform a society with the hope that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. understand that's what it's like in a world that's blind to the consequences of sin that denies the existence of sin they deny the existence of sin but then they reserve the right to tell you that what you're doing is sin we look at this story and and what do we see well the first couple verses is kind of a, a typical luke thing he kind of tells you and at first you think this chapter is going to be like Paul leaving Ephesus, and it's not. If you look, he, it says like, oh, Paul resolved to go, but then he doesn't go. He sends somebody else because Luke is introducing what's going to happen later on. Later on, Paul's going to leave. He introduces that idea here. But before he leaves Ephesus, then Luke writes about this, this, this incident that happens. 
And we see that there's Demetrius. Demetrius is a silversmith, so, so he makes like not just silver shrines. He probably made, you know, little, you know, little statue idols. You know, he, they probably minted coins. And he would then um, sell them to the craftsmen who would then either sell them themselves or use them, you know, put them together and, you know, sell a bigger display or something like that. And he recognizes something. He recognizes that it's been about two to three years, and he recognizes that more and more Christians, more and more Ephesians are becoming Christians. And more and more of them are becoming Christians who no longer can, can syncretize the worship of Artemis with the worship of God. And he looks at the source of this problem is this guy Paul. Paul's a good guy to accuse because Paul's not from there. He's this outsider, came in. And he's, he's saying, like, guys, um, this is going to hurt our bottom line. It's going to hurt our business. And that seems to be his real motivation. But then he attaches onto that, you know, oh, we need to take care of good and great Artemis. But he, he's, he's actually affirming what we read earlier from Luke, that the gospel message has spread from this little church with this man named Paul has spread to all of Asia Minor. And so he gets this crowd enraged. They become this mob, and the way Luke describes them, it's the true mob mentality. I don't know if you've ever been part of a mob. Hopefully not. But if you've ever been part of a mob, there is a psychology to, to mobs. People in mobs will do things they would never do by themselves. And a lot of times, people don't even realize what they did. Luke gives a good description of it. They, they get so enraged at what Demetrius says, these craftsmen, that they go out and they spread the word and it, you know, there's a guy, he's attacking Artemis. And Luke says that they didn't even, they, they didn't even know some of them why they were there. They were just there. It's like, hey, there's a, there's a good riot going on. Let's all go. Seems like a happening place. He uses a couple times the word confusion. That they're not even agreeing on what they're upset at. He says some were crying out one thing and some were crying out another. And, you know, added to that, Luke says, you know, finally some of the Jewish people want someone to step forward, so they have Alexander step forward, and we don't have any, um, you know, thought here that Alexander is a Christian at this point. He may be, but, but it doesn't seem like, but it doesn't matter. The crowd doesn't even want to hear from him. And then it says, for almost two hours, think about something that you can do continuously for two hours. For two hours, they're in this hot, sweaty place, chanting, great is Artemis of Ephesus. You ever go to like football games? 
and UH fans are often the worst, but you know, they start the rhythmic clapping and they just can't, they just can't do it. They just, they do it and then it gets faster and faster and faster and faster and then it's just dead. It's like, we would not have made two hours, Hawaii football fans. We would have made maybe two minutes and then we'd have been like, all right, let's go get some nachos. Two hours, two hours. And the town clerk, and the town clerk is probably like a mayor. The proconsul is like a governor. The town clerk is more like a mayor. So somehow after two hours, they're probably exhausted, but somehow he finds opportunity to get them quiet. And then he tells them, he says, what are you guys really upset at? And he doesn't say this, but this is what he's implying. He's saying, if, if Artemis is so great, can one man take her down? What does that say about our goddess? If one man can spread the word and that can make our goddess fail. He doesn't say it that way. He's saying it as a really good politician. He never says, I believe in Artemis. He just says, hey, Ephesus, we're the keeper of the Artemis temple. We're the keeper of the sacred stone, which was probably a meteorite that fell and that was interpreted as having come from the gods. We're the keeper of that. No one's going to deny that. This isn't really hurting your business the way you say. It's kind of what he's implying. But then he gets to the heart of it, and I think it's an important point. The town clerk is saying, these men did nothing sacrilegious. And he's talking about these two guys, but he's also talking about Paul. He could be talking about Christians as a whole. He's saying they did nothing sacrilegious. We have no idea if the town clerk is a Christian or not. We have no idea if he, whose, whose side he's on. We just know that he's saying there's nothing sacrilegious nor blasphemous against our goddess. But he says, if you have something, we have laws, and we have ways to deal with it. And having mobs, confusion, people chanting, that's not the way you deal with it. He says, hey, bring charges. We have charges. And the town clerk uses the kind of the ultimate trump card for people who riot. Look, if this keeps happening, the Roman soldiers are going to come in here and we're all going to be in trouble. Calms everyone down. Interesting story. Third part of when God gets hold of a city and we, we, we see some things happening here, and it's taken two or three years for this to happen, but it certainly happened. And the first thing that we see is that we see that from the evidence from Demetrius, that the gospel has been transforming Ephesus from the inside out. And I think that's how God does things. He transforms culture from the inside out. It's not Christians railing against culture. It's not Christians protesting. 
It's Christians in the culture living the gospel, sharing the gospel, in love with God, in love with one another, in the culture. Through that, God confronts the culture. We forget this sometimes. It's funny because the more activist churches will rightfully look at other churches and say, you guys do nothing, you stand for nothing. And then the stand for nothing churches will be, be over here saying, you know, you guys are causing more problems because everybody thinks Christians are closed-minded, narrow-minded, and hateful. And they think those are the only two choices. And the Bible says, and Jesus says, and Paul says, relentlessly love one another. Relentlessly know the gospel, study the gospel, live the gospel, share the gospel. That's the plan. Do it. So many times the church can get caught up in, in, in the ways of the world. We think we have to engage in power against power, not power against love. And you might go, well, that's stupid, that's naive, because if power goes against love, then, then power always wins. That's no way to fight a battle. Two thousand years later, in fact, within about three or four hundred years, Christianity has not only become, in Rome, legal, it's become the official religion of Rome. Two thousand years later, there is no Roman Empire. We read about its crumble. The Church of Jesus Christ still stands. The Soviet Union had decades to wipe out Christianity. And those of you old enough to remember when the Soviet Union fell, it was Christians on the front lines, not firing weapons, but standing in front of tanks. Did people get tortured? Did people get thrown into prison? Did people get executed and died? Yeah, they did. A lot of awesome Christians. But they didn't fight back power against power. The gospel gets transformed. I mean, the gospel transforms the culture from the inside out. By the way, that's the way the gospel works in your life and my life. If the gospel is simply giving us a list of behaviors that we should all follow, that's no gospel. That's just another law. But what the Bible tells us is that when we become Christians, it's an inside-out job. Christ in me, the Holy Spirit lives in me, 
And from the inside out, my heart has changed, my motivation has changed, and my actions are changed. It's not behavior modification unless it comes from inside of who we are. It's why we can't do it on our own. We can't just get the list of Christian duties and Christian rituals and Christian rules and follow them and be Christian. I have a feeling you'll be a better person than you would otherwise, but you're not Christian. Christian is when you've, you've given your life to Jesus Christ. You've surrendered. You've said, God, I, on my own, I'm doomed to just continue to live in sin, slave to sin, and I give that to you. You receive the forgiveness, but you truly surrender. And when that happens, the Bible promises that the Spirit will live in us. We will be made new. It's the only hope. Live, love, share. And if we were to use military terminology, it would be you're doing this behind enemy lines. You're in enemy territory, but you're not a spy. You're not a spy. You, you're, you, you are an ambassador for Christ. You see, if Christians aren't willing to go into enemy territory and live and love and share in the world, if they're always retreating, trying to find those, those safe places, how is the world ever going to know? You see, the way of the world, and we see this in modern technology, the way of the world is to depersonalize killing. If you look at a lot of the, the things that the U.S. military has done recently, they're doing it with drones. It's not even a human being like in the plane anymore. And the United States isn't alone in this. It's, it's the depersonalization. It's killing from afar. But if you're going to be in God's kingdom, his weapon, if you want to use the terminology, it's his love. You can't, you can't use that weapon from far away. I mean, we could try to sit here and say, let's all just really concentrate and focus and let's send love to Botswana. Botswana, by the way, is our aphelion. If you were to drill straight through the earth from Hawaii, you'd end up in Botswana. Trivia, useless information. But that's the farthest away somebody could be from us. No. If we wanted to love the people of Botswana, we would have to go there and be with them and live with them. That's God's way. Not broadcasting. Not launched from far away. You know, maybe we could get some tech together and, um, you know, maybe create the love bomb, you know. We could just send that bomb out, hit, nobody dies, everybody just has God's love. Well, that doesn't exist. It's hand to hand. 
It's what this pastor used to say every time he came to the seminary and he preached. He, he had started a church in inner city Chicago. And by the way, I guess I should add this point. He's a full-on white dude, okay? And he, his name was Charles Lyons, and he was, in, he was in inner city Chicago, and he started a church that became a mega church in inner city Chicago. And every time he came to seminary, and every time he preached in chapel, he said the reason he did that is because what he realized about God, that God loves us so much he didn't just send us a message. He didn't just send us a message. Jesus loved us so much he didn't just send us a message. He didn't just come and visit. He didn't commute from heaven and go home every evening. He moved into the neighborhood. And so many Christians want to love other people without moving into their neighborhoods, without moving into their lives. We will love people if they will enter our lives. But we have a really hard time loving by moving into their neighborhoods. Some of you are really good at that, better than I am. But a lot of you are like me. We struggle. See, when you move into neighborhoods, you cannot help but begin to develop relationships. People see the gospel in how we relate to one another and how we relate to them. And plus, let me just tell you, even though I don't think we should live our Christian lives purely motivated by, by what we get out of it, I think it's important to remind ourselves of what we get out of it. When you have relationships with other people that are healthy and positive and reflective of God's perfect love, it makes your life richer. It makes your life deeper. Your understanding of who God is. You, you see beauty where you couldn't see beauty before. It does benefit us. Shouldn't be the motivation we do things, but it does benefit us. It's funny how when we had the men's conference, and, and I'm not going to lie, I have these same thoughts, that we have these men's conference, and you know, Jeff Kemp was talking about having closer relationships between men. And like how men need to have like really good Christian friends, where they have healthy relationships, where they're so close they can share whatever is going on in each other's lives. You know you, that, that person has your best interest. You know they're not going to betray you. And yet if someone says, I will give you that kind of friend or a new truck, most men, Christian men, myself included, it would be a hard choice. Because we don't value it. Women do this better than us. But as men, we don't value close, intimate relationships with other men. It's too weird. It's too awkward. And yet, Christianity, if we're living and loving the way God says, it should just happen. It should be natural to us if we're in Christ. And you need to know, when you move into the neighborhood, 
You need to know that when you move into other people's lives, there is always the temptation, there's always the danger of syncretism, of baptizing other people's sins instead of trying to help them receive forgiveness and, and for them to confess and to repent. And there's always the danger, as we're seeing in this story, of persecution. Because when the gospel transform the culture, it's confronting the culture. And there's always going to be elements in the culture that do not want to be confronted. And they will fight back. What is the action point for this? Well, it's not anything new except to say that we need to live the gospel authentically. If I were to sum it up in two words, understanding that we're talking about God's love is that we need to love boldly. That doesn't mean drawing attention to ourselves. You don't have to. When you love the way that only God loves, people will pay attention. The second thing we see in how Luke tells us this story as when we look from especially in the section where he's describing this crowd and this mob and this confusion and, and you know, people just, just shouting and saying all these things. He's presenting this this way because if you, if you, if you remember Luke, one of the reasons Luke is writing the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles is he's writing it to explain to the larger population who these Christians are. And to really raise the, the question, why do you guys hate these people so much? Why do you persecute them so much? All they do is help other people and love people, and they, they get along, and they, they, they try to create like peace and stability, and they, that's what they do. They're not, they're not raging against the empire. They're not picketing your business. And Luke, I think, is, this is probably one of the prime examples he gives us to make this point that he's making to his audience, which I think is still, we need to understand today, that violent opposition to true Christianity does not make sense. It doesn't even make sense to the world. Why would you violently oppose and try to put down people that just love. People who are serving others. People who are trying to reconcile and bring peace. People who are hardworking and ethical. Why would you not want them in your society? Why would you kill them? Why would you risk your own society with this uprising, this, this violence? Why would you risk it? What have they really done? And I want to make sure you understand, everyone who's taken the name Christian for the past 2,000 years, all of them have one thing in common. None of them is perfect. And some of them are less perfect than others. And there have been horrible things done in the name of Christ. 
That's why I made sure on this point I said true Christianity. Because there's a lot that's in church history that I don't think was sourced or was done by true Christians. But I think we're seeing here in Ephesus that you don't have to be perfect. You just need to be authentic. One authentic Christian, one authentic church. What can God do with that? You see, Demetrius had kind of implied, if not accused Paul of disrespecting Artemis. But the town clerk clears that up. He goes, if, if that's the case, why didn't you bring the evidence? Why didn't you bring the witnesses? Why didn't you take this to a court of law? And so the town clerk says the opposite. He goes, no, these guys haven't done anything. You see, Paul wasn't, wasn't going after Artemis. He wasn't saying Christians should chain themselves to Artemis so that you know, no one can you know, worship there anymore. No, they're just being the church. They're just living the gospel. They're just sharing the gospel. And just that is having an impact on the culture. There's no prayer that you know, we have that, you know, if idols are going to be torn down, it's not because Christians are, you know, getting bulldozers and tearing them down. If you tear down that idol, you haven't really torn down the idol. Because the people who believed in that idol still have that belief in their hearts. By the way, that's another point we need to, to, to make sure that, that this, this narrative is working on two levels. It's working on the level of Christianity, true Christianity, confronting and transforming a culture, but it's also working on true Christianity, confronting and transforming my own life, your life. Again, where are those things in our own lives, our idols in our own lives, that we think we've kind of got them in safe places and we're able to do our Christian thing, but we still have those idols. So I don't, I don't have idols. I don't have, you know, Artemises or Zeuses or anything like that. The Bible's understanding of idol is anything, anything that, that you value that pulls you away from your true devotion to God. Anything that you would, you would give honor or worship to. It doesn't mean that as Christians we're just so single-minded that all we do is think about the Bible all day. That God placed us in this earth and there's many things in this earth that are wonderful and awesome things. But when those things become idols, they, they begin to shape ourselves and they even begin to shape our faith. I was reminded this week of, of, of a sermon I preached like, it's been what, seven and a half years, so I think it was in the first month. 
And the name of the sermon, I think you can still get the recording online, but it was called The Tyranny of Like. And it was part of it, one of the main points of it was about how our culture is drunk, addicted to happiness. And parents addict their children to happiness. That all that matters in life is to be happy, 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 happy. And parents devote their lives to making sure their kids are happy, 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 happy. And I remember, some of you actually remembered the image if you were here, that I had up on the screen, which was a clown driving a, a bus. And my point was, God wants happy to be in your life, but he doesn't want happy to drive. And so many of us allow happy, or we allow success, or we allow pride, or we allow a number of other things to drive our lives. Jesus gets to be in the car, but he doesn't get to drive. It's an idol. What is the action point here? Well, it's pretty simple. We need to continually be strong in the Lord. Strong in the Lord and means we're being disciples, we're learning, we're growing, but we're strong, not just so we can be strong, and we're strong in the Lord because when we're strong in the Lord, His light shines brighter. And when you shine a bright light, it draws attention. That means persecution can and will come, and when it happens, we need to stand firm. And the last point is this that we see in this story. Because what we understand, if we kind of go back to what Demetrius was saying in verses you know, 23 down through about 27, he's not wrong. He's not wrong. He's not wrong that if Christianity continues to grow and continues to spread, that fewer and fewer people are going to worship Artemis. Fewer and fewer people are going to come and buy their things. He's not wrong about it. What he's wrong about is thinking like that's the only way he can do anything, that there's no other way. But he's not wrong. He sees it as a threat because it is a threat. The world is changing. And it's being changed by God's love, and it is a threat to those who have monetized sins. The world is threatened by God's love because God's love is the opposite of what's at the heart of the world. The world lives for survival. The world lives for power. The world lives for comfort or for happiness or for whatever other thing you want to add to it. God's love is selfless, sacrificial, humble, serving others. It's a threat. If only Demetrius had known that Christians will buy trinkets just as much as pagans, right? He could have started, instead of little Demetrius shines, he could have made those, you know, he could have made little bumper stickers, you know, and just said, you know, Jesus heart me, 
or something like that, and Christians would have bought those things. He could have done, he could have just, you know, changed the trade a bit. But he's not even thinking of that. He's thinking, this is a threat to me. This is a threat to my business. This is a threat to my, you know, my livelihood, everything I've built up, and I don't want to change. Therefore, I need to get rid of the threat. And you see, the riot exposes who the opponents are. It exposes who Demetrius is. It exposes who the opponents are because they would rather follow their own way, even though it leads to this riotous confusion. They would rather do that than do what the Christians are doing. Loving one another, caring for one another, serving one another. And the action point is, again, pretty simple. I don't have enough time to unpack it this morning, but next week I'll try to come back to it a little bit. But it's that we should seek to show God's love in every situation. Every situation. We should want most of all that God's love is apparent. It's going to look differently depending on the situation. It's not always going to be the same thing with the same people or different people or, you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all. Expressing God's love is a challenge. Expressing it well. But we should seek to do that. And so we see what happens when God gets a hold of a city. But God got a hold of a city because he got a hold of 12 men. And these 12 men received the gospel. And then they lived it. They shared it whenever they had opportunity. And their world was changed. 